Streetlights are on, and you're listening to Largely the Truth with Brennan Store. To all you restless sleepers and midnight creepers, bleary eyed truckers in the graveyard shift, this is Brennan Store, and you're listening to Largely the Truth. Whether you're staring at a screen or the lines on the road, all is well. And for the next little while, it's going to stay that way. Because I'm here. You're there, and together, we're going to explore the night. Welcome back to Largely the Truth. I am your host, Brennan Storr, and this is the internet's favorite podcast. The internet just doesn't know it yet. It is good to be back in your ears, folks. I hope this finds you well. Despite having had what you might call a bad mental health day today, I am doing pretty well myself. And now I know that's not something I have talked about much on this show. But over on the Ghost Story Guys, which is, of course, uh, uh, my day job, Ghost Story Guys, I've been very open about my struggles with depression and anxiety, particularly uh, as circumstances have changed these last couple of years. And, I mean, who among us has not suffered as a result of this, this awful goddamn pandemic? But in February of last year, I decided to try something radical to take the reins of this thing. And I started microdosing psilocybin to try and control the peaks and valleys of my particular mental illnesses. And though I I encourage you to check it out with the assistance of a professional, I have found that it has done me some real, real good. And then late last year, I got myself into talk therapy. And now it's not cheap, of course, but that has also been really, really useful in allowing me to set down some of this emotional baggage I've been carrying around for a real, real long time. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, Why the hell is he telling me this? And I am telling you this because my guest tonight is someone who is very emotionally literate, and it is always wonderful to have a conversation with someone who is not only aware of their emotions, but able to dissect and discuss them at a very specific level. It's just a real privilege. And not only is this person emotionally literate, but they are someone who I've been looking forward to speaking with again for a very long time. Really, ever since I met them 14 years ago in the sands of Morocco. That guest is recording artist Ash Devine. Ash's latest album, The Sex Issue, came out in December 2020. And while I won't spend a lot of time praising it here because you'll hear me do enough of that in the interview itself, I will say it's a wonderful record. You're definitely going to want to check it out. You'll, of course, hear samples in this show, but I encourage you to follow the links in the show notes and experience some of Ash's other music as well. Before we get started, though, I want to remind you that if you want ad-free episodes, head on over to patreon.com slash largely the truth. That's patreon.com slash largely the truth. And for only $2 a month, you get an ad-free feed. Who doesn't want that? Ads suck. You also get the episodes a couple days ahead of everyone else and access to bonus material when available. Finally, if you've got a comment on this episode or a question you want answered, come find the show on the Repod app. I'm always available in the chat there. I'm happy to answer your questions. I'm a pretty social guy. So if you download Repod from the App Store and search for Largely the Truth, we can socialize to your heart's content. All right, with that housekeeping out of the way, it's time to sit back, relax, and reach out to the very talented Ash Devine. My guest tonight is an extraordinary artist who I had the great pleasure of meeting a long time ago in a desert far, far away. In the years since then, Ash Devine has exploded onto the independent music scene, releasing his first solo record, The Lush, Elegiac Mother, in 2018. In December 2020, Ash dropped his second LP, the boisterous, thrilling, and frankly brilliant, The Sex Issue, and he's here tonight to talk about not only his music, but his latest project, The Confessional. Ash, my friend, welcome to Largely the Truth. Hi, Brian. Happy to be here. I am thrilled to have you here, because this is a conversation I never actually thought would happen. Because you and I met in a time when people who were on the road just kind of met and then went on with their lives. This was just sort of just before social media really became a thing. This was before social media. Yes, actually. <laughs> Isn't it strange to think? I can't imagine a world without, without social media. <laughs> yep. 
That's how I feel. Yeah, you and I met in Casablanca. And I, I'll never forget, you were the only person I met on the road who kept a second pair of good shoes in their backpack. <laughs> I remember you saying that. I remember you saying that you had to keep a second pair of good shoes when you visited family. And I, I never met anyone on the road who'd had that particular concern. And so I, that always stuck with me. <laughs> I remember, I mean, Casablanca you, or anywhere in Morocco, you'd walk and the shoes will get so sandy and so dirty so quickly. So, oh, yeah. You, know, you had to keep, keep an extra, keep a pair. That's it. That's it. Oh, they might get stolen. Well, there was that too. Yeah. Did, did you ever get robbed when you were over there? We, got, we were robbed twice in, in Morocco. I was almost robbed and it was by actually a gaggle of very uh, nice women. Okay. Um, and you know how, and this, this was in either Rabat or Casablanca. I think it might've been Casablanca. I was going down into the beach and there was this beautiful like staircase. And you know how they do like people in Morocco. They do henna. They, they're like people on the streets doing henna. Or these sure. mostly women, they, they, they want to do henna. And I'm like, no, I don't want it. So I got grabbed by this woman. And then the <laughs> other woman took my hand. She started putting henna. I'm like, I don't want it. I have no money to pay you. And really, <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm barely making a trip happen. <laughs> um, uh, and then there was a discussion of should we take his bag by a third oh, woman. Wow. And then I basically had to run off. Holy <laughs> man. That was a that was a close contact with a criminal hennaist. <laughs> a, a run by hennaing. Yeah, <laughs> that that happened to my cousin Mike, who I, I was there with. He uh, he was gripped in someone's iron iron claw and forcibly hennaed, and I think he paid about eighty bucks. You know, which this is long enough ago that was a substantial amount of money. I mean, even now, I would sniff at eighty bucks, but yeah and uh, 80 bucks in morocco back in back then was uh yeah that was that was substantial and of course we were actually physically robbed as well once in rabat and once in marrakesh wow but you know it's a part of the experience being robbed and you know almost being chased <laughs> by a knife and then you know that's <laughs> part of the tapestry that you know beautiful morocco is there we go and we survived so we get to tell the story and like the stories i was telling you off air it just it makes us sound cooler Although you don't need the help. I, I just admire so much how your image has evolved since the time I met you. And uh, we'll get into it a little bit further down the road because, again, there's so much I want to ask you. But I'm, I'm really curious. Were you making music when I met you back then? I was making music, but in a less focused way than I am now. And I actually, right after uh, we met, I came back to the States and then we formed a band and we signed on a label. And, you know, that was my like label experience. And we were an indie pop band and we were like a five piece with like guitars, bass, keys, drums, and me and vocals and guitar. And we sort of did somewhere between these, uh, the, the Smiths and Interpol, like that zone, and maybe a little bit okay. blondy, like that sound. And uh, so the new, new wave post-punk. And then after the label experience, I decided, well, well I'm, you know, I, should, I could just do this on my own. And I will be that independent artist. And, and of course, I had a degree in music, and I wanted to get back to my roots of composition. So then I wrote Mother built my own label and started making music independently and working directly with the distributors, the agencies, et cetera, that, you know, major labels work with. Right, right. So when you had your major label experience with, the, with your group, uh, there, you've told a story of, in another interview about how you met with a label in New York and they mm. told you a particularly, I'll, I'll say douchey story about Jack White. Yeah. And was this, was this around that time? No, this is before that. Uh, you know, you never, uh, the industry never runs out of people with ideas and opinions who probably <laughs> at one point wanted to be creative, but never got to be. So now they're trying to, you know, armchair and mold and, you know, they have the purse strings. And so they have that power and, uh, you know, they, they realize later in life that they're, what they're really seeking are is power and not the ability to create. And they got that mixed up when they were younger. So that's what happened. So you never run out of these people in the industry. Um, and I still continue to meet them and I still continue to just laugh and marvel at, wow, clueless. I guess that's all you can do really, because as you say, they do hold a certain amount of power. So you can't necessarily confront them and say, look, you are an example of what's wrong with humanity. I guess you kind of have to roll with the punches. Yeah, well, I mean, th there is that. But then I think, you know, social media with all its shadows, which I'm sure we'll get into, you know, sure. has usurped 
the the power structure and so now they're all very nervous and uh, it's not like they were not nervous before but they're more nervous than bef- uh, than ever and you know George Floyd was about the intersection of race systemic issues with race and police brutality and it suddenly became we need to get more artists more black artists on our labels which in had a good effect but it really was not one to do with the other you know Uh, suddenly corporations started to put black people in their ads, you know, so there is uh, power works in funny ways. And, you know, it becomes more about virtue than uh, to to retain power. I mean, this is a much more like complex thought. Of course. But, you know, to bring it back. uh, Yeah, no, this previous label experience, actually, you know, they were doing their thing as a label does, you know, they know the audience, they send you to places like Tallahassee, Florida, to perform, and you do it, people show up, they like what you do. And like, that's, that's what it is. And it makes money. And, you know, and we live life. But when you start to make stuff that is not you know, fitting a an existing category or an existing genre, then labels and executives start to get nervous and start to wonder and the risk becomes much higher. And then it's up to the artist to create a market and find the audience who's listening to them. And then by, by the time they do it, you already have your own label. So then why bother? Right, so, yeah. Yeah, but the conversation you mentioned actually was in context of me running my label independently, which I'm very proud of, it's not easy, but we've done it, is trying to get a distribution and publicity deal for the release of, of Mother. Um, okay. And that was an interesting conversation. And this was like uh, a few years ago. Right, right. So well, let's talk about Mother then, because that's a, a really uh, beautiful, melancholy album. And uh, you've mentioned again in other interviews that it was very much informed by what you call a, a complicated relationship. With your with your mother, and obviously it was it's sort of about mother as a concept, but also that relationship. Are you are you interested in expanding on that a little bit? Yeah, um, definitely. I, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. First of all, you've done your research. Thank you. Um, of course. Yeah, uh, you, you know, you you meant you bring up mother now because you know I've been in therapy for the last twenty years, and I am a big proponent of mental health care. No shame in that at all. Absolutely, uh, we can get into it too. But I feel like I'm not done with the Mother album in a way. I think it's going to come back in a, in, in a different iteration, like some more needs to be said. Because, okay. you know, Mother is, uh, most of us are lucky enough to have uh, a mother figure in our lives, uh, who are lucky enough to have a mother figure in our lives. You know, we learn the way we attach to anybody, whether it's romantic love or f- brotherly love or platonic love or whatever it is. The idea of attachment is something we learn from the first attachment we have with mother. And we carry that in every relationship. It shows up in every relationship. And a lot of couples therapy is about, you know, am I seeing my spouse as my mother unconsciously in some way? Am I trying to please them? Am I trying to get away from them while being in the relationship? There's a lot that needs to be worked out. And so as I get older and smarter about, you know, hopefully smarter about life, there's more that needs to be said uh, in terms of mother. But anyway, the, the, when I wrote the album, it was me for the first time breaking off from a structure, going independent. So I had to birth my own child. And right. that put me through emotional experiences that I could, I felt like, okay, maybe my mother felt that too when she was dealing with me. And uh, it was also a way for me to work out my separation with my mother, which happened, at so, you know, in, in so many different ways through through my life. And one of the biggest separations was, you know, when I came out and my mother didn't know what to do, my family didn't know what to do, and they responded in the way they thought was the right thing to do right. based on their intergenerational ideas. And sure. it wasn't. It just broke us apart, and we're still broken. Yeah. So uh, the album is me working out the chaos that ensues, the anxiety, the, gr- the, the gratitude of, you know, this sense of attachment and love that, you know, the mother gives. It talks about what is my identity in terms of my relationship to my mother, to, ho- to motherland. I think in Morocco, we might have touched upon, you know, what does it mean to be where you're from? What is homeland sure. versus what's motherland? Um, you know, me being an immigrant here in America, being raised on multiple continents, you know, what does my own identity mean? Um, all of that was something 
uh, I was working through with mother. And it was, it was a lot of heartbreak and loss coming through uh, in the album because just my relationship is heartbreak and loss with, with my mother and um, right. uh, mother figures in life. If you don't mind me asking, when we met, were you out? You know, I gosh. And I, I was definitely out. Yes, I was definitely out. Okay. I came out in 2000. Oh, okay. Okay. We, I, met, so I, I, we never talked about it, of course. So I, I just was, yeah. I was curious. Yeah, uh, probably like 2006, maybe, when we met. Oh, it was 2008. 2008, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was definitely out by then. But also, you know, being being out and being in 2008 in a... Morocco is a more pro, generally more progressive country than a lot of the neighboring countries. But, you know, sure. it's also you've got to be careful in how you express. And not that I was gallivanting around <laughs> looking for boys <laughs> in Morocco. I wanted to experience the culture and this amazing, incredible, beautiful, colorful country. That's funny you say that because it, it reminds me, you know, obviously I was much younger then and so was my, my travel companion. And, you know, growing up the way we did, very, very cishet, you know, very, very, very heteronormative stuff. Being in Morocco was very eye-opening, especially for my travel companion because he's a tall man. He's a bearded man, good-looking guy. Beard. Yeah, and uh, which he still has to this day. And he was, he was the ob object of a lot of male attention when we were there. And it, it really threw him because he didn't know how to deal with it because it, it's never, it's just not something that he'd had happen in his life in North America because he was never in a, you know, any queer space, any place that where he might even uh, have to sort of contemplate that. And I remember it, it really threw him and it, he wasn't offended by it. Of course, he was just, it was something he'd never had to process before. These guys were complimenting on his beard. They would stroke his beard. And he hates being touched without, uh, without expressed written consent beforehand. Yeah. And I had never seen madness in a man's eyes the way I saw in his when, uh, when uh, these, these strange people, again, of either gender, would reach out to touch his beard. But yeah, yeah it, was just, it, was, it was fascinating how just sort of changing the cultural context forces you to reexamine all these things that you had just considered uh, normal. You know things things you grew up with, and you you start to realize that you know normal is is an invented concept, and it's it's all very much about where you are in place and time in the world. And that was yeah, that that was a, a real education for me. Yeah, I, I mean, just my you know, we met briefly. It was just one night in a hostel in Casablanca, I think one or two nights, and it was a very brief interaction because we were off on our ways in the day, and then you know we'd come back to the hostel at night um, to rest and. My experience of you guys were you guys were curious and you guys were chill and we were having a conversation. You know, I didn't, I, and through my travels, I've definitely experienced people who are, you can tell there's a very closed off energy and they most likely won't meet those people in Morocco. You know, you meet <laughs> yeah. those people in less um, exotic locations, I sort of that way. <laughs> right. Well, you know, in the same year, I ended up in El Paso, Texas. And I was ended up staying with a, an elderly fellow. I shouldn't say elderly, but I ended up staying with an older fellow who was the friend of someone I had met in Austin. And this guy was a, a historian in the El Paso area. I believe he still is. Mm -hmm. And uh, he picked me up from the bus station at about 10 o'clock at night. And ordinarily, mm -hmm. he would not have hosted me, but his wife was out of town. He, he had a spare room, so he picked me up. And we ended up sitting on his porch until 4 in the morning, until the sun came up talking. And... That honestly, that's why I started this show because I miss the kind of conversations I used to have, like we had in Morocco, because I feel like we people just don't appreciate that kind of conversation anymore. I think it's sort of considered to be a a thing you do at a particular time and place in life. You know, that is your, when you learn. You you have you learn. You experiment with the different ideas, and then you sort of uh, you know you you stop looking through the glass darkly and you put away the childish things and. I don't know, you get a job as a businessman or something. And uh, I never really, I never really made it to that part of my life. I'm still in a lot of ways mentally in 2008, mentally wanting to just engage with people in the world and, and hear what they have to say. And I mean, it's, it's enriched my life. So I, I'm certainly not complaining. And again, I, I hold conversations like those days in Morocco, very, 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 uh, very, in very high esteem. I hold those conversations very dearly. I remember us talking about God and you introduced me to the book, the God, the God, Oh, um, the, the, the God Delusion yes, uh, by the Christopher God Hitchens. Yes, the God Myth. Yeah, exactly. And so I read, it, I read the book upon your 
recommendation. This was years ago. I remember this long conversation about God and what it means to believe and faith and all of that, uh, and not in a in a very like. Um, not in a theological way, but more in an anthropological way, if you know what I mean. And it, right. was, it was quite, um, but you know, these conversations I do hold dearly because, you know, I have these like still fantasies of, you know, why don't we have these, you know, salons of like artists and thinkers and, you know, yes. and journalists and podcasters and writers, you know, come together and talk about ideas and that would be it. You know, it doesn't have to be anything more. And I think, yeah, I have fantasies of doing that. I think I'll do that at some point. Me too. That is that's one of those things. So it's something to keep in mind because that's a very much one of those things. A friend and I were actually talking about that, about this idea of, of artist collectives and uh, things like this, just be, to be around people who are interested in, uh, in learning about the world yeah. still. Yeah. So briefly, this is something else you mentioned and I wanted to touch on. Um, the notion, and this is something I've kind of come to understand in my own life, this idea of your mother dealing with you. And I think one of the most um, enlightening moments in my life was when I had the realization that my parents were people. When I started to sort of step outside of the, the uh, I mean, I've never been close with my father, but, mm-hmm. you know, stepping outside of my, my mother-son relationship and just viewing my mother as a human being mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, obviously I'm creeping up on 40 now and I'm long past the age where, you know, she would have, I mean, I think my mother had me when she was in her early twenties, you know, mm-hmm. so I, I can sort of have a little bit of hindsight there and see how she related to me as a person. And it, it just changed how I regard her. And I think I, I understood her and maybe sympathized with, uh, some of the decisions she'd made a little bit more. Has that been part of your, uh, sort of your emotional journey? Absolutely. It has been a part of my emotional journey. And I think in order to, you know, humans are very complex and nuanced creatures and, you know, uh, particularly family where there is so much invested, there's love and, uh, you know, even if you do separate, we have broken family, we still think about each other, you know, that never goes away. Those yeah. are things to read hard to disentangle from. They live inside you, like my mother and my family and my sisters and my, my father, they, they have, their voices are still inside me and they talk and we have conversations. And so you can never really separate. And so it's not as easy as, well, I came out and I was rejected and I was disowned. And so the family broke apart and never see you again. I mean, it's not as flat as that. Because sure. these voices remain. There's that love that always remains. And so how do you, and that, that conflict between separation and desiring that love creates this, a wound, which you always carry, you just have to manage. And so... You have to heal that wound somehow, and the way part of that healing or the part of the managing the, the the separation is understanding, seeing things from their perspective of why it doesn't make it right or wrong. It's sure. also about pulling out the right and wrong of it. Right. You know, I would do for my child. I would do things very, very differently. Right. And it's not just based on my experience. I think the person I am, I would have done it very differently, even if I was. A heterosexual male, uh, right. I would have done it very differently. But I, indis- I can see why, because they they didn't know any better, and that doesn't make it right. But right, so that empathy does is needed to heal. And so, yeah, just as you were saying, as you get older, the uh, and, and wiser, these ideas you start to hold together multi- the nuance. It's it's holding together the nuance of you know. My, my perspective, their perspective, and what, what may have happened. Um, right. But you have to hold these ideas together, not too tightly, loosely, because they change. Yeah. No, I, I understand what you mean, because I, you know, my, as I mentioned, I'm not close with my own father. My father's a drug addict, or was. We haven't spoken in 15, 16 years, and uh, longer now, actually. But the older I get, the more I understand him, you know, mm-hmm. because you, you start to see the things in them in yourself just configured differently. And it sometimes I think helps to look at a situation and say, okay, I understand why the per- this person did this. doesn't make it okay. As you said, it doesn't, doesn't uh, necessarily absolve them mm-hmm. of what they've done, but it does allow you to pack that away to a certain degree and to say, okay, well, you're human. I understand why this happened. This is not my fault. This, mm-hmm. is, this is a you problem. You have to begin to see exactly them as humans flawed beings as the rest of us that's it and so on that on that level i'm curious was the making of mother cathartic for you 
I thought it would be cathartic, but it felt like the first note on it because mother shows up in so in every relationship, you know. Right. So right. I write the sex issue and mother is showing up again. Uh, not that I'm having sex with mother and not that there's anything <laughs> edible, you know. Um, but in, in a very Freudian way, you know, mother is showing up in so many ways. So I feel like it's just the first dealing with heartbreak and loss and processing that, what that means. Right. Um, does that, did that lead to catharsis? No. You know, it led to anger. Because I hadn't felt angry towards a mother. And I think, and, and, you know, even Freudian psychoanalysts would say, you know, anger towards mother is an essential piece of individuation. What that means is, you know, as we grow right. up, we as people have to separate ourselves from the image that mother has created, the, uh, you know, the love, etc. We have to become individuals. And anger is a part of it. That's why teen anger is so important. It's important right. for the teen, uh, teenagers to be angry so they can individuate into being uh, people. And I, growing up, always felt like, sorry for my, you know, uh, like maybe I did something wrong and maybe I should, right. you know, maybe, you know, I'm making their life miserable and difficult and I had never gotten angry. And so this album helped me get angry at okay. why, how, why did you do this? And then that after that anger was through, that's when the process of catharsis begins. And that's when I'm able to talk to you in a way that they're now, you know, I can see them as flawed human beings. At that time, I didn't. Right, 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 right. Because that skipped over the phase of anger. It was the same for me because I was very much raised to be a people pleaser. And I kind of wonder if that was the same for you. You sort of raised to try and just make them, make them feel better. You know, you want to make people, you, you don't want to cause a fuss. You just want to just, no, let's just move on, you know? And uh, for, I know for me, I, I'm, I'm in therapy myself and it's taken me a long time to recognize that, no, I don't, I don't have to be that person. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a difficult identity to let go of. But when you do, I found it very freeing. It is very freeing. And you feel, I at least went through my emotions of guilt. Like, am I being selfish? Is this what narcissism is? And right. they're like, no, 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 no. This is you <laughs> taking care of yourself and seeing yourself as an individual. And it's not your issue to solve somebody else's problems. It's not upon you to take their projections on you. Their ideas of who you are are not you. You know, that those are two different things. And that separation uh, is important. Absolutely. So I, I wanted to zero in on one particular song from Mother. And mm -hmm. we'll do this with the sex issue as well. There's a couple songs I wanted to know about. But mm -hmm. Promise Me, really, I found that a very, uh, very, just incredibly, both beautiful and haunting song the first time I heard the record. Can you talk a little bit about the process behind that particular track? Okay, so I wrote the song in actually probably 2010. Okay. And I did not put it in the record. I was, and it was completely different instrumentation. We'll, put, we'll talk about instrumentation separately, but really Promise Me is about a way I had to work out. I had to see my mother in a way that she's letting go. I, it was me, how should I best put this? It's written in my mother's voice as if my mother is telling me, look, I'm having to let you go, but promise me you'll take care of yourself. That's really what the song is about. Okay. And I had to write that song in order to tell myself in the absence of my mother actually saying that to deal with the loss of her. Right. So, uh, you know, for those of us who are lucky, mother will play the mother's part. I didn't have that. So right. I had to be my own mother. And so I had to write a song telling myself that I have to let you go and promise me you'll take care of yourself and you'll follow your happiness. Right. So that's what the song was about. And so how did the instrumentation come together? So previously it was all written, written on guitars. And then um, after, you know, I started my own label and, you know, really went to the drawing board of like, I come from a composition background and I want to write 
with strings and chamber instrumentation and i love electronics and so how do i combine that and it's also like a unique sound that you know not many people do or are doing um you know you see bjork doing it well um there are a few other people who do it in the industry but it's it's a very rare sort of combination it's is hard to do bringing chamber something so organic and juxtaposing it against something so cold and electronic and making it sound like music so I, um, you know, we, we made the beats at the studio called Different First Studio in San Francisco, which is where, you know, Sylvester, the, uh, the disco genius from San Francisco, recorded all, you know, uh, uh, their stuff. Anyway, we made the beats at uh, Different Fur, and then um, we recorded strings there, and we juxtaposed them, and then a lot of um, the samples on uh, Promise Me are my voice. That has been, um, it's not vocoding, but it's been keyed up and down to okay. add to the synth sound, so that a lot of the synths are really my voice. Um, oh, yeah. wow. I love, that's, it's an incredible sound. If it's, I'm thinking of the, the, the there's a couple of vocal since I'm thinking about the just again really add this like um trying to think there, there's a it's almost like a crystal color to it I I sort of have, I have a bit of synesthesia and so yeah. um it sort of has this like like sort of dimpled crystal yeah feel to it it feels crystalline and you use the word haunting and it it has a certain like ghostly sound to it because yes, it's very much also so. it's bringing forward the sort of death of a relationship that uh you know could have been right and it's the same person sort of uh it brings up it's haunting because it's it's lonely in the way yes. it's written that's it's great and it's and beautiful I, it's haunting because it's beautiful <laughs> yes that too uh and just quickly and, and this is something i'd like to talk about a little bit later but um the music video for promise mm-hmm. me is really quite visually uh engaging where, where did that come from so I worked with uh, this artist, Phil Rugo, out of L.A. and Kit and Janae, and I saw like, their work on Twitter, and uh, they were making that like, early. And now that technology has advanced so much, uh, like how you know, animation and uh, the different studios, suites that you know, people use for animation, uh, 3D animation work. But at that time, you know, um, I saw these images on Twitter, and they were making these beautiful humanoid figures and i was i related to them because mother felt always so sort of unreachable for me and these characters in the video belong in an unreachable landscape right and you know there's a scene in the video where the child is being born out of the mouth not the womb right and you start to wonder if you're letting go, how could you let go? Maybe because I was born out of your mouth and not your womb. It, you know, maybe, right. uh, maybe I came out differently. And it speaks to, it symbolizes maybe I came out differently because I was different or because you saw me differently. And so there is a lot of like that metaphor happening. And then when the child comes out from the, video, uh, from, from the mouth of the mother, and the mother is barely able to hold it together because, you know, she's sort of wobbling and then falls, sort of falls apart in the video. Right. That was me saying, I understand it was difficult for you to mother. Right. I, again, it's, it's an incredible piece of art. And folks, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to all of Ash's videos that we talk about uh, because they're all, the, the visual sense of, of all, in all these videos is incredible. I mean, these are, uh, again, they're pieces of art. And they, they, they must be seen. So check the show notes for links to all of Ash's videos. We're going to be talking about a couple more of them. But uh, again, they, they are definitely worth your time. And so how did the release of Mother go? How was it received? You, you toured a little bit behind it, did you not? I toured on Mother. I uh, did 16 dates. And one of the actual <laughs> one of the shows was, um, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, um, the oh, Supreme yes. Court Justice in the United States. He was being... Um, nominated and there was a big um, big demonstrations across America and so I played one of the rallies about 3,000 people I think in San Francisco that was a big show and very cool. played Migrant so what? I, I'm sorry I was just saying that's very cool yeah yeah thank you so I got to combine my sense of activism with bringing the song Migrant which is to do with identity and sense of belonging in San Francisco 
by City Hall, like those are such incredible and like a large audience listening to it uh, with the mayor of San Francisco there, London Breed and you know, all of them coming together. It was just such a dream come true. But I did tour, uh, you know, um, the West Coast. I was in Seattle. Seattle was a great, great show. It was a full house. Um, Portland, L.A., San Francisco, San Diego, New York, Philadelphia. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a great tour. And people were actually, like, when we'd perform, people were surprised because the, you don't see strings and electronics done in this way. So it, it was a very, when people saw it, they're, like, really sh- shocked and surprised. Like, what is this, you know? Right. Um, it's a very unique setup that I was going around with. So uh, how many people were you touring with? So I would tour with um, my, the backbone of my band. And, uh, you know, beautiful art, it's about the beautiful people behind it. And so uh, the backbone of my band was my percussionist drummer uh, for the tour was Taylor Rankin. Uh, he's incredible. You know, he's also, he does film. Uh, and then uh, Helen Newby, uh, who is the cellist. And so she'd play the bass parts and the cello parts. And then I worked with, um, for the live uh, arrangements for the tour. I worked with Mina Choi of Magic Magic Orchestra out of San Francisco, and um, she has her own project. And she's an incredible um, composer, and she runs this orchestra collective called Magic Magic Orchestra out of San Francisco. And they've played with Radiohead, Death Cab for Cutie, and they've oh. been yeah, really. Um, so uh, Mina is incredibly talented. So she. She wrote the arrangements for like a trio scenario because my arrangements would be for like 15 pieces. And so she right, I was wondering, it down yeah. for, to, to be able to tour with. And so, yeah, that was the band. But what would happen is I would go to a city, Seattle, and we'd put out a call for musicians in Seattle and we had all the music written. So it'll be Taylor, uh, Helen and I, and then we'd get uh, a violist and a violinist from the city itself. So like Seattle Symphony sent two people uh, oh, okay. So in New York, we had people from, you know, Juilliard come in. That is very cool. And so this is getting a little bit ahead of ahead of where I want to be, but I'm just curious, have you done any dates since the pandemic? I did a couple of dates in the pandemic online. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, online. online. Okay. Okay. Um, and, you know, so this was a bit of a heartbreak for me. 2021 was a rough year because I had put I've developed a show I have developed a show we developed it in spring of last year so almost nine months ago and you know we had some dates booked and then delta hit and then omicron hit and then we just couldn't get it out there because it just wouldn't be responsible and then the people got sick and then we didn't know if people if the venues would be open which venues would be open would travel be okay it was right. just a lot of um yeah so going from Mother to the sex issue, I mean, that was released in, as I mentioned, December 2020, I believe, December 4th. Is that right? Yes, it was. Yeah. And the, it is uh, thematically such a 180 from Mother. And I have listened to that one, uh, I, I, to be honest, much more than Mother, because even though Mother is, is beautiful, it's, it's, um, it demands, I think, more of you emotionally. Whereas the sex issue is such a vibrant, uh, again, frankly, wonderful album. I just think it's yeah. brilliant. And seeing it with the videos, uh, I was watching some of your videos recently over the last couple of days, and uh, man, it's just fun. And it just seems like uh, sort of you stepping out and saying, okay, I've, I've packed these things away and I've kind of processed these things, and yeah. now here I am. Would that be accurate? That's absolutely accurate. So you were talking about mother and then you're talking about, you know, we talked about anger and then we talked about the sex issue. So this is my own evolution where I had to process my heartbreak and loss and uh, my sadness around it. And the anger has, anger is really valuable if used constructively. Absolutely. it just invigorated me. And so uh, Mother was an album. Yes, absolutely. I want people listening to Mother. It, it is just a, a heart, staggeringly heartbreaking, beautiful album. It was more for me. The sex issue is as much for me as for everyone. Um, right. It is, you know, it's like you said, it's less emotionally demanding. It is, you can really quickly get into it. And the anger also, my anger processed into, it became vibrant. I was like, let's get these beats in the studio and I don't know what comes. I'm just going to 
So BBC, for example, which is a funny song, and there's a lot to unpack there. You know, I I took the beats, I took it to the studio. Within a day, it was done. And this was, you know, I haven't rapped in the past, and this is this is like a rap song. And it just landed. And I was, you know, uh, beckoning parts of growing up as well. And we can get into that of, you know, um, some Indian forms that I'm bringing into it. But uh, this album happened very, and constructive anger sort of um, is coming through into, uh, has sort of evolved into this vibrant, colorful, bustling, boisterous album, The Sex Issue. Boisterous is a perfect word and, and colorful as well. The, you talk about the, the, the different forms and you are seems seemingly playing with a lot of different, uh, a lot of different colors in this one in terms like sonically you bring in, uh, can you talk a little bit about the musical influence? And then I very much want to talk about the, the content of the, the lyrical content as well, but uh, yeah. I just wanted to sort of set the stage with the, the sonic palette stuff. Yeah. So sonically mother was, you know, big orchestral arrangements against electronics. And um, long ballady sounds and heartbreaking loss. It, it, it had a very specific vibe. Now, Sex Issue is a complete 180. It feels like Holi. Holi, H-O-L-I is, a, is an Indian holiday of colors. It's like you're, the colors all over you. It's, it feels yes. like getting into something like that and it's chaos and it's, um, you know, um, some people call it, there's just this chaotic energy about it. And sonically, I did use electronics. There's still some, some uh, laggard strings that I brought in, you know, sadness right. is his first song that I wrote actually, which is when I hadn't fully processed my anger. So you, when you listen to sadness, you're like, oh, that may be to do with mother. And so right. I did wonder. Yeah, so that was one of the first songs I wrote, and it's still on the album, and for a very good reason. But, um, you know, that's an example of the phase of my writing is like I hadn't fully processed my anger. And then Common Questions, which is much more upbeat in BBC, is like um, it's a, a bouncy, you know, electronic sound with samples of Indian instrumentation. Um, uh, Common Questions is like very, like, techno synthy yeah uh, combined with like uh, lots of like vocal harmonies it is a uh, craft worky feeling so sonically i just wanted to create a much larger palette and emotionally too i wanted to create a much more rounded palette from you know songs that are like dark and moody and then songs that are just absolutely euphoric like jungly or common questions right so when i i remember looking at the um the album when it came out because uh, I, I have a, one of the vinyls. Thank you. Of course. Um, you, even though we hadn't spoken in a very long time, I still consider you a friend. I will always support your art. That's just the, that's how these things work. But uh, I remember looking at at the record and thinking, BBC man, he is not fucking around. And and listening to the song, it was just, I just loved it because I <laughs> thought this is a guy who's in in full command and is is just going to say exactly what he wants to say. Again, in other interviews, sort of, you've sort of broken down BBC because initially it seems very provocative, yeah. um, and of course, of course it is. Yeah. But there's a lot of uh, layers happening there, and I wonder if you could talk. I mean, I, some of our listeners may not know what BBC stands for, and folks, it's not British Broadcasting Corporation. It is um, not. It is not. <laughs> so, it is exactly what that, you think it is. <laughs> it, yes, it is exactly what you think. I mean, let's just state it for those for those who are not certain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, BBC stands for Big Black Cock our big brown cock. And it is about owning brown sexuality. It's also about satire and objectification. It is about fetishization of color. It is about pornography. It is about all of that. And we have to discuss it in an open way. If you're going to talk about sex and issues around sexuality, we have to talk about fetishes. We have to talk about objectification. We have to talk about race. We have Absolutely. to talk about pornography, like all these things are. 
part of our sex issue. You know, uh, millennials and Gen Zs are having less sex than ever. Even though you have Tinder and Grinder and you know every other app around the corner, and you can just you know meet anybody uh, very quickly. Well, pandemic might have put a damp, uh, damper on it, <laughs> it but, a little bit, but a little bit, but but they are having less sex than ever. And this is before this is pre-pandemic. You know, the statistics are much lower level of sex. So many. Yeah, I will send you an article, which is uh, a beautiful article in the Atlantic. Uh, about it, about why that is, and pornography, about communication, about understanding of sexuality, is a big thing. And we are more progressive as a, as a society. We're talking more about sex. Um, sure. uh, queer rights are much uh, much more progressed than they were before. Um, marriages and divorces are easier to do. Uh, marriages are lesser. People are cohabitating without having to be married. There are less pressures on having kids. Uh, heteronormative uh, 1960s, pre-1960s heteronormative lifestyles of woman at home and man at work, you know, don't have to exist anymore. Equal pay is sort of happening now, you know, beginning right. to happen. But we are having less sex than ever. Like, why is that? And so those are all the sex issues. So anyway, BBC is a song that brings together some elements of what our sexuality looks like today and i think we have to talk about it it actually came right at the back of wap oh, cardi b like wet ass pussy like that yeah, came yeah. out the previous friday and bbc came out the following friday and just as wap was about owning female sexuality and uh, i think i think they said female brown sexuality bbc coincidentally is really about owning male brown sexuality sure and yeah, and, and so the, the lyrical content of BBC, actually, there are some other explicit songs on the sex issue, but BBC doesn't have a single explicit word, but it is about big brown, big black cock. Which is what I, I, one of the things I just loved about it, because again, it is exactly what it sounds like, but it is about it in such a clever and fun way. You know, the, the video with the Godzilla imagery is just, uproarious I, I adore it i just think it's I, I literally laughed out loud watching the video i i just think it's one of the best things i've seen in a very long time we just and, we just wanted chaos we just wanted chaos and sex, <laughs> and it was a lot of fun you know you mentioned the videos and i think it's very important for people to know we didn't make a big fuss about it but i wanted to hire uh and this isn't i wanted to hire a non-male uh, I wanted to hire a trans or non-binary or people of color cast and crew. So we worked right. with an all-female run production house, all-female directors. Uh, our cast was also for all the videos and the entire project uh, of an underrepresented minority in the film and music industry. And it's not because of the identities of these individuals. You know, they're limited jobs. It, it basically boils down to economics. There are limited jobs, and I yeah. think we need to give everyone an opportunity. If I have the budget, if I have the power, I'm going to pull the purse strings that I can, that the other record executive that I was talking about earlier, yep. who chose not to, who would rather fund Jack White. Yeah. You know, if I have the economic power, I will make it happen. So that's you know, a change that I want to see for myself. I would rather do it for people around me. Yeah, and, and again, I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes, folks. Make sure to check it out. But it, it all comes together in this, in this incredible package. And uh, yeah, again, I just, just love it. There are lots of other nuances. I mean, uh, from a video perspective, you know, it's all set up in uh, the broadcasting, eras of broadcasting. You see, you know, the very early, the first BBC, what, what we call test cards, which would be like, let's test transmission of the BBC before the actual Bro British Broadcasting Corporation streams the not streams but like broadcast the news at that time right. this was in like 60s and so we use that original bbc test card to open the video right. and so it's starting from the 60s and you start to see the 70s you see anchorman sort of business happening with uh you know there's a 70s vignette then there's an 80s vignette then there's a 90s and there's the very 2000s 2010s vignette happening so you're seeing britney spears as well in there and that's the right. 90s happening Aubrey Smith was a director, did an incredible job uh, of like doing these eras and these periods in time. We did a 50s uh, vignette as well. Um, and then the song itself is that the loops are made from like um, uh, Indian, South Asian, 
sounds that I actually made by blowing into a woodwind called Chennai, uh, okay. which is a very specific South Asian instrument used for weddings and celebrations and funerals. And um, right. actually, yeah, it's not usually funerals, but it's, it's a more celebratory thing. So like weddings primarily, um, right. or like when, when babies are born, that's when they'll it's for festivities. And so, yeah, uh, it's, it's a very nuanced, very layered um, song. And I just briefly, because I, I was fascinated when you mentioned this, the, the, the presence of Godzilla in the video. You mm-hmm. were, you, at the time, you were into sort of uh, older Japanese cinema. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, uh, where did you read that? <laughs> to older Japanese cinema. Um, I want to I can't, it was, it was an interview you gave. I don't remember which, it's but you so were talking funny. about about that and you were mentioning like uh yeah sort of pre i want to say pre-1980s japanese cinema yeah i really got into that and i watched the original have you, the original godzilla if you haven't seen it you should see it it is so over the top and i wanted to bring that over the topness <laughs> into this is pre uh, the original godzilla is about how godzilla emerges from the depths of the ocean because i think the in it's evolved from eating plastics and like nuclear waste or whatever else is like getting to the bottom of the ocean and the actors there are just like over the top they're crying they're like such indicating performance crying and um really wanted to bring that sort of over the topness to it because you're like we bring godzilla and then i watched godzilla and i was like yeah i think to add to the chaos and the humor, I think we should, we should bring the over-the-topness to it. And which is why, like, the way Ellen's going about, the way Britney's going about, it's all over the top. So the next song I wanted to talk to you about was, and the last song that we'll focus on, I mean, I, I could ask you about things for a very long time, but uh, we do unfortunately have limited time. The last song I wanted to focus on was the title track, The Sex Issue, because mm-hmm. that is, that's just a masterclass in pop songwriting. Whereabouts did that fall sort of in the composition order? You know, that was one of the last tracks I wrote for the record because I wanted to put a bookend on the record and what it all means. You know, it's about being in a relationship and all the issues that come up in relationships to do with sex and sexuality. Right. Do we fall out of love? Are we watching? Uh, is, is the pornography? Is it all the time you're spending on social media? Is it on. Uh, is it that you're too busy? Um, why is it that we are drifting apart? And then it gets into, you know, sh- should we have family? And if you do have family, then do we have it now or should we just freeze our eggs? You know, it actually, the, the bridge in there samples Esther Perel, who is, uh, you know, who has a, her own podcast as well, but she is a, an intimacy and couples um, therapist. And uh, I think a podcast is called Where Should We Begin? And it is, I, once I started listening to it, I couldn't stop listening. And so I listened to that podcast through writing the sex issue. And, you know, so she, her voice is sampled in there. And, you know, the, uh, the sex issue asked the question of, is love desire? Is desire the same thing as love? Is intimacy the same thing as uh, as Emotional, emotional intimacy and sexual intimacy are the different where the day, where they come together. I mean, those are the things that inspires. And then it also talks about the other things that get in the way of uh, of us in life and sex, religion, money, mother, our gender identities. I've known people who've changed gender, who try transition through being in a relationship. So it really encompasses all of the things that impact modern love. Right. in how we love each other and things that affect us and how we bring ourselves with each other. Right. And I mean, there's so much to unpack there. I'm fascinated by relationship mechanics, by sex, sexuality, uh, the way people relate to each other, 
our hangups, you know, because I recognize in myself all these landmines around certain things. And, you know, obviously the fewer now that I've, I've been you know, kind of going through therapy and luckily I'm, I've always been an introspective person. So I've been able to maybe explore these things in ways that other guys don't, but I'm still fascinated by that. And, and especially in the modern era, because as you say, you know, the, the generation after us is having less sex. And to me, that seems crazy because I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know why you would have less. Like that's like, that's like saying I, I eat fewer meals. Why? But, you know, I, I understand it. We, we just relate to each other differently. And I find myself at this sort of unusual point in my life where I'm, obviously I grew up with a certain, a certain set of expectations around what constitutes a relationship, around what constitutes um, intimacy and what constitutes, you know, security really. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've, as I've gotten older, I've, I've found myself thinking, you know, these things don't necessarily work for me. But what does that mean? You know, what does that say about me? What does that mean? Like, am I, is there something wrong with me? And I realized, no, it's, I think this is something that most of us have, but it's so hard to unpack the insecurities mm-hmm. that are involved there that I think a lot of people just don't, just don't touch it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why I think, I think things like the sex issue, the album and the things you're exploring, I think it's really important because, well, especially you know, with, with Christianity, you know, sort of on our backs, we've spent so long just being afraid to examine those things and what they mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That is true. I mean, uh, generationally too, like my parents, uh, I don't know about you, but my parents and a lot of people, most people I know did not talk about sex and sexuality openly. No. I think the, the, the world, the technology, the, the, me- the way media and pop culture have um, expanded, we're now forced to talk more about it because we just, we have to. And that put us all in a place to see sexuality as one thing, as a static one thing that gets formed and that is it. But it's fluid. It changes just as we grow and change. You know, we become, you know, from sad people to happy people to angry people to empathetic people to wiser people to smarter people to scroogey people. You know, we, we change through life because of things that happen to us as a response to the external world, internal world. So sexualities are quite fluid and that should be okay. That should be okay. You shouldn't have Absolutely. to. And also sexuality is expressed not just in bed, in the ability to have sex. It's in how we interact with people. Sexuality is the, this, this life force that just come, grows out of a lo- loins. And it, um, it's feeling sexy and just bringing yourself to the world with that full energy and the, like a, like a, you know, uh, uh, plump tomato you know in the market yeah, this is absolutely. beautiful that tom- that the tomato has sexuality in it. you know it's like <laughs> yeah. it's, there is possibility there is excitement and that to me is also part of sexuality and that changes through life too and so sexuality isn't just you know our ability to have sex and copulate that is that sure. is the most reduced way of looking at things sexuality expresses itself beyond bed and so that's what the sex issue is about. It, it covers all of that. It covers, you know, happiness, joys, you know, perceptions and ideas of what it means to be a living, breathing, sexual being. Sexuality is hardwired in us. You know, it is, it is a part of who we are, but it is fluid and it changes. And I think it's our responsibility to take care of it. I couldn't agree more. And so as we wind down, one of the last things I wanted to ask you about, Ash, was the confessional project. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because I, I've seen the website and I get it, but I, I, I want to know more about it from you. Absolutely. So the confessional. So after the Sex Issue album came out, I got so many messages. I was inundated by messages from my listeners or their friends that about their own stories of sexuality relating to, you know, how mental health affects them or like a workplace romance that they had or like they've been in a long-term relationship and, or that they're this boy, you know, I screenshotted this message from this boy in Indiana. And of course I'm not going to, you know, this is anonymous, but he said, you know, I wish I had the uh, courage and ability to speak like you do because I am 16 and I know I'm gay, but I can't tell my parents and I don't know how I'm going to get out of this place. And I'm really, you know, worried. And so 
I, I got met, it was very touching. Um, and so I got lots and lots of messages like these. So then I set up this thing called the confessional, right. which is where anyone can come in and call in and leave a voicemail with what happened to them, how they feel about it in terms of any experience to do with love and sexuality, especially those that they haven't been able to share before due to fear of judgment or shame uh-huh. or violence in some cases. Um, and anything they want to get off the chest, this place is anonymous. It is 24-7. It is free. And how we make it anonymous is when somebody calls in, we uh, erase please call in without identifying your number. It is possible. Nobody picks up the phone. You directly get to voicemail and you can leave right. a message. And then when we look at the messages, it goes through like a voice uh, uh, trans- transformation thing where you can't tell whose okay. voice it is. And right. then we're also getting confessions through the confessionalproject.com where you can actually go in and type in a confession if you want it. Um, and what we're doing with these confessions is we are talking to academics and thinkers and writers and artists who think who t- think about love and sexuality, uh, bring them together and talking about what these stories mean. And we've collected, um, I think, twenty eight stories as of today, and right. they all they're in themes of you know workplace romance, uh, religion, and um, intimacy. Uh, there is one about abuse. So there's a whole slew of themes which I think people would really really um, love to hear from and can relate to. Absolutely. And, and I think it's still hard to, you know, despite the, the prevalence of sex in the culture and sexuality in the culture, I think it's still hard to have those conversations or to say some, those things sometimes because it can be a loaded, as we said, it can be kind of a, a loaded topic for some people. So to say, you know, this happened to me, it's, it's hard to know where you can say that because I think, uh, you know, a lot of people have this issue where, they think to talk about sex, it must mean, oh, we're, we're, you, you want that from me. Or, you know, you expect that that's going to happen to follow on from this conversation. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it, it's sex and sexuality is just such a great theoretical exercise. It's, it's just fun to talk about, but I mm-hmm. think it's hard to do that. And so things like the confessional, I, I think, are really valuable because it gives people a place for that. Absolutely. You know, I want to keep it because the messages from everybody were so real and open I want to take those values of real and open, make it real and open for everybody. Whether you listen to the music or not, you know, it, it, at least there's a, there's a way for you to express something you've been meaning to tell someone and you just haven't found the person and you just haven't been able to tell someone about it. Because the way we express sex and sexuality in culture and media is so distorted. You see the exaggerations. You see like... Oh, yes. Horrific issues of abuse, or you see this horrifically large breasts and butts, and that's sex, you know? So you have yeah. these exaggerations, and we lose the openness and reality of it. And that's what the confessional is hoping to do is create a safe space to be real and open and unpack these stories that we are, we're getting from people. And folks, that number is 1 646 867 2261. If you've got something you want to talk about, you want to, a story you want to tell, that uh, that is the number for the confessional again that's 1646867-2261 and I'll include a link to that in the show notes uh what's the website ash it's the confessionalproject.com perfect well i i'm excited to uh, see where that takes you because again i think it's a fascinating topic uh, that we talk about a lot but maybe not enough in the right ways and uh again so much about the sex issue i think is going to help that discourse Ash, as much as I hate to say it, the conversation is is coming to a close. I could talk to you a lot longer, but uh, thank you so much for being here, my friend. Brennan, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, no, really. My pleasure is all mine. Where, where can everyone find you online? You can find me at Ash Divine, A-I-S-H-D-I-V-I-N-E dot com or at Ash Divine anywhere on Instagram, TikTok if you use it, Twitter, I'll be there saying hello to you. And I'm very directly reachable. I'm very accessible. I want to keep this relationship real and open. Very cool. Well, my guest again has been Ash Divine. The album is The Sex Issue. You can find that at ashdivine.bandcamp.com. And again, there'll be links in the show notes to all of Ash's social media, to the videos, everything Ash related you will find there. Again, Ash, it has been a pleasure, and I hope it's not another 14 years. 
before we get to I the hope end. it's not another 14 years. We should do something with the with the confessional too, Brennan. Thank you for having me. And that's the ballgame. Don't forget to check the show notes for links to Ash's social media, his music videos, and of course his Bandcamp page. You'll also find a link there to the confessional project. Huge thanks to Ash Devine for taking the time. It was truly wonderful being able to catch up with him again. Thanks also to Peter Kursov of Pizzanta Music for my fabulous theme song. Find more from him at nightharvestrecordings.com or by searching for Pizzanta Music wherever you get your tunes. And finally, thank you for listening. Without you folks, there wouldn't be much point. Until next time, I hope the night takes you to the same strange and wonderful places it takes me. And remember, if you're not sure what comes next, put a call out into the dark. You never know who's going to pick up. I'll see you next time.